Man, if you're an NFL fan, wow, right? Was that not the best two weeks of football that we have seen in a long time? If, if you're not an NFL fan, I'll, I'll try to catch you up. The last two weeks, there were six football games. Four the first week, the winners of those two, then or those four playing in two games this last week, and the winners of those two games playing in the Super Bowl next week. We get the week off from football this week. Those six games, though, five of them ended in the fourth quarter with a field goal going through the uprights, either to tie it up and send it into overtime or to win the game right there. And then the sixth game was decided not by a last second field goal or an overtime, but by a last second interception. All six of these games, just nail biters are watching to the end. And at the end of it, we've got two number four seeds in the Super Bowl. The greater teams got beaten by the teams that were lower seeds. It was awesome to watch. And it had NFL fans just glued to the TV through the whole thing. Now, whether it's that good or not, there's something about the playoffs every year that every football fan just kind of hides in a cave and just watches the playoffs. We're just gripped by them. We can't take our eyes off of them. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason it makes such compelling TV, whether you're a fan of the sport or not. And it's that you don't ever really know what's in a player until the player is put to the test. You can have somebody that does really well in training camp, but that doesn't tell you how well they will do in a game. You get them out on a field in a game and you start to find out what's really in him. And you can have someone lead the league in yards for the regular season, but you still really don't know what's in them until you put them in a high pressure situation where this last four plays left in the fourth quarter and you got one drive to save your season in the playoffs, that's when you really find out what's in Patrick Mahomes, what's in Joe Burrow. Does he have what it takes to take a team to the Super Bowl? Only one way to find out, watch the playoffs and see. Because you don't know what's in somebody until they're put to the test. That's why we love to watch games like that. And if you're into another sport, the Olympics or baseball or anything else, it's those playoffs, those championship games that tend to bring out what's really in a player. It tends to really put them to the test. That's so fascinating for us to watch because it's just like my life and just like your life. We don't really know what's in us until we get put to the test. You can think of yourself as a patient person who has a lot of trust in God's sovereignty over your life. But when your car breaks down, that's when you find out what's really in you, right? You can think of yourself as a really monogamous person whose heart is only given to their spouse. But then when that one person winks at you, you find out what's really in your heart. You can think of yourself as a very patient parent, but then when your kids complain, talk back, and bicker with each other for a whole day, and then a whole week, and then a whole month, and then for two years, you start to find out what's really in you. How patient are you really? You don't find out what's really in yourself or what's really in somebody else until they're put to the test. And those tests, whether we like it or not, are a regular part of the Christian life. 
You may be tested like Joseph was by Potiphar's wife, right? The opportunity of pleasure and power in front of him on one hand if he took her proposal and the threat of abuse if he did not. Perhaps that's how the Lord will test you. Or like Moses, tested in the wilderness by leading a constantly complaining and bickering people. You may be tested like Job was tested by having everything you love taken from you and your very enemy asking the question, will he still serve you when he has nothing? You may be tested like Daniel, all alone, sent to the lion's den for the crime of praying to his God. Or you might be tested like Jesus himself out in the desert, hungry, weary, and then our enemy dangles everything you want in front of you. If you are a Christian, unless you've only been a Christian for a very short time, you have at some point have your faith tested. And unless the Lord takes you home very soon, you will have your faith tested again. The Lord means this morning to equip us for those tests and to help us understand the ones that we've had in the past. He's going to do that this morning through the very same story that we read last week, Genesis 22, when God tests Abraham and asks him to offer up his only son. So we look there this morning asking God, would you help us through this story to better stand the tests that you put in front of us? Would you look with me at Genesis chapter 22? After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, And took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut for the the wood for the offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. And he laid the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now, I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its thorns. 
And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose, and they went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kimuel the father of Aram, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlath, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reuma, bore Teba, Gehem, Tehash, and Maacah. The words of the Lord. Through that story, the Lord gives insight into the tests that we have endured in the past and strength for the tests that lie ahead. I said last week what I'll repeat this week. This author is emphasizing two things in this story. On one hand, this is a story of God providing a lamb in the place of Isaac. And on the other hand, this is a story of God testing Abraham. Both of those things make a great emphasis in the story. The author puts there on purpose. So last week, we read the story and we focused on God providing a lamb, what that means through the lens of the whole scripture and how Jesus Christ ultimately fulfilled it in his sacrifice on the cross. This week, we look at the author's other emphasis, God testing Abraham. And my prayer was what what it would do for you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ is that you'll be able to look back at things that have happened in your life, maybe some of the most difficult moments of your life, or some of those key decisions where your faith and your faithfulness was on the line and you had a choice to make. Maybe we'll be able to look back at that and make a little more sense out of what the Lord was doing in your life in that moment. Not only that, but you can look to the trials and tests you are going through now and the ones you will go through in the future with more strength to stand the test and receive greater reward in heaven. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and you're here this morning, I want you to know how glad I am that you're here. And I want you to know that this is one of those messages in the scripture that God gears toward his own people. So you're in this strange situation where you're you're hearing a message this morning that is really directly written to the people around you. And I know that's a weird experience, but I'll promise you that if you will stick through to the end, there is a message pointed right at you, even if you're not a believer in Jesus this morning. Uh, But see along the way how good God is to care for his people and how worthy of our faith he is. We see this theme come out in the very first verse of the story. What is this a story about, you might ask? Well, verse one tells us, after these things, God tested Abraham. Don't you love it when they tell you what the story is about in the very beginning? I sure love that. It makes it much easier to interpret the story. So we know that this is put before us as an example of God's people enduring tests. A test is any situation that God puts you in 
that kind of asks the question, will you still be faithful even when blank? Anything you can put in that blank, that's a test. Will you still do the right thing even when whatever? Will you still trust God even when your car breaks down? The Lord takes someone you love from you, whatever it might be. Any situation that makes you ask a question like that or in which he could ask that question, that's a test. And the Lord does it to bring out what is really inside us. Just like the NFL designs the playoffs to bring out what's really in the depths of those players. We see that emphasis start in verse 1 and it continues in the way that the author tells the story in a way that really makes you feel for Abraham. Uh, a lot of you, when you talk about this story, we can't help but ask, man, could I do that? That would be so hard if God asked for one of my children. We almost read this thing through Abraham's eyes. And it's right to do that because the author is putting all sorts of things in there that make us just hurt for him and feel for him. Even in the very beginning when the test is offered in verse 2, there is this buildup that just makes you hurt for him. Verse 2 says, uh, in the original order, take your son your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Is that build up to that son, to only son, to the son that you love, to Isaac? Oh, how much pain must have been in his heart. And we almost can't help but imagine if the Lord asked for something like that, especially with that building rhetoric like that, how painful it would be. But that author drives home the fact that this is his son, many times through the story. Let me point them out. We got that build in verse two, right? Then in verse three, Abraham rises early in the morning. He takes his donkey, two young men, and then it says his son Isaac, right? Emphasizing, not just takes Isaac, but takes his son Isaac. Again, in verse six, Abraham takes the wood and he lays it on Isaac, his son. And then in verse seven, Isaac says to Abraham, his father, and then he says, my father to him, and Abraham says, here I am, my son. You're seeing all this emphasis here. It's not necessary for this author to repeat father, son. We all know that Abraham is Isaac's son, but here he is drilling it in, twisting the knife every time, reminding us that this is his son. On it goes in verse eight, Abraham says, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. In verse 9, Abraham builds the altar and he binds Isaac, his son, right? The author can't help but let someone's name go by without reminding us that he is his son. Verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So we can see the depths how much this author wants us to see this is his son that he is offering up. Of all of the things you would give to the Lord, what would be the hardest if you only had one child to give that child to God? And so we're feeling for him the whole time. Many other ways the author makes us feel for him as he goes through. In verse three, Abraham gets up early in the morning to do it. Now, the last time he got up early in the morning, it was to do something he really didn't want to do. It was to send away Hagar and Ishmael. He had two sons at that point, had to send one of them away. And now he's got one left. He's got to give up that son, and he gets up early in the morning to do it. 
And maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you have had a a sleepless night before you had to go and do something that you didn't want to do. And finally, it's four o'clock in the morning and you know you're not going to sleep and you just say to yourself, oh, I might as well just get up and get it over with. We can imagine Abraham going through something like this. As he packs for the journey, he gets everything together. The very last thing he does is chop the wood. And that looks a little strange, doesn't it? He, He saddles the donkey, gets the donkey ready, gathers the servants, gathers his son together, and then he says, hold on, everybody, I gotta go chop the wood. It's like he's saving this for last because he really doesn't want to go and chop the wood on which his son is going to be offered. In verse four, they're walking, and there's this ominous moment where he lifts up his eyes and he sees for the first time the place where he's going to have to offer his son. Imagine walking this road, you've got two grown men with you, you've got your son with you, and then all of a sudden you stop because you see for the first time the place where you're going to have to offer him. This is weighing heavy on him. Then in verse 5, he leaves the servants. So it's just Abraham and Isaac now. And you can feel the loneliness set in as he is there with his son and his son doesn't fully seem to realize what is happening. And so all alone, he is walking up this mountain and yet with his son at the same time, this strange, like he's not alone, but he is all alone as he's going up the mountain. And it says, and the two of them walked there together. And then I think the hardest part of this whole, the most excruciating part of this whole thing is verse seven. They're walking up. And Isaac either starts to figure it out or just asks innocently what must be the most excruciating question for Abraham to hear. Father, we have the wood and we have the fire. Where's the lamb? Oh, Isaac, you are the lamb, buddy. Oh, that, that hurts. And all Abraham can do is look at him and say, God, God will provide a lamb. It makes me think of maybe, maybe you're driving one of your children to the hospital and they just start asking questions. Dad, what's going to happen when we get to the hospital? Are they going to run another test on me when they get to the hospital? And you just don't want to say, yeah, they're going to run more tests on you when we get to the hospital. You just want to say, it, it, it'll be okay, buddy. And so there he is just having to answer this little boy's difficult question. And you can hear the loneliness in his voice in verse 8 when he says, God will provide a lamb. And then it repeats that refrain. They go on, both of them together. Then we finally get to the top of the mountain. And this author draws out the last moments for two whole verses as if it's the longest moment in Abraham's life. And I think if this were us, it would be the longest moment in our lives too. He, he gets to the place, he builds the altar, he lays the wood in order, he binds his son, he lays his son on the altar on top of the wood, he reaches at his hand, he takes the knife to slaughter his son. That took a long time to read for something that's really just an instant. This author wants us to linger there in excruciating pain for Abraham as he goes through this. And I hope you feel what he was going through as much as this author wants you to. Because there's a point to all that. Do you feel his pain? Do you feel his loneliness? Well, the author wants you to sense that because when the Lord tests you, it's often painful and it's often lonely. That's the first big thing that we learned about the tests that God puts us through today. They are often painful 
and they are often lonely. Often mothers are tested when they're home alone and the children begin to fight and bicker and disrespect them and be difficult and it's a difficult day and it lasts for however long dad is gone for and then dad comes home and everybody's happy and woo everything's great and so dad doesn't even see how difficult the whole day was and here's this poor mom who doesn't understand what's going or her husband doesn't understand what's going on in her life nobody sees how difficult her day-to-day life is and so she starts to feel like she's all alone even though she's got kids with her all the time and a husband who comes home to her just like Abraham kind of sees all alone, even as Isaac was walking with him up the hill. Often it's like that. The tests God puts us through are painful and they're lonely sometimes. For widows, often the husband or the wife dies and everybody gathers around you and there's a funeral and you're busy as anything and then all of a sudden everybody leaves and most of the deep suffering you go through, you go through alone and you're wondering, where, where is everybody? Men who suffer through unemployment and have their faith tested through it just does something to a man to be unemployed for a while. It's difficult. And it often puts him in a place where he doesn't really want to talk about it and doesn't wind up sharing what's going on in his heart with people. And there he is, maybe living with a wife, living with children, but kind of all alone because nobody really understands the pain that's in his heart while he doesn't have a job. Often these tests are painful and often these tests are lonely and we can see bits of ourselves in Abraham and the pain that he suffers as he walks up that mountain. That could be relieving to hear because a lot of us buy into the lie that if it's hard and lonely, we must be doing it wrong. Does it feel that way sometimes? If things are hard, I must be doing it wrong. If I feel lonely in this, I must be doing it wrong. I was at one point uh, seeing, uh, uh, not a physical therapist, but I guess a trainer who was giving me exercises to help with my posture. And she gave me one, it was my friend Brienne uh, back in Kentucky. She gave me one where you stand with your back up against a wall and you have to touch your, your elbows, wrists, everything to the wall. And all you have to do is move your hands above your head and then back down. But you can't take anything off of the wall. And it sounds easy but it's super hard. And so I did one right in front of her and I was like, that didn't work. I tried another one and I was like, I I must be doing it wrong. That was really hard. And she said, that's the point, dummy. (laughs) It's supposed to be hard. That's how tests are. That's how workouts are. Just because it's hard doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. And just because it's lonely doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Actually, it probably means that the Lord's testing you and he wants you to stand the tests so that he can reward you later. First Peter 4 actually says this very thing. He says, don't be surprised if a fiery trial should come upon you as if something strange were happening to you. Tests are not a strange part of the Christian life. They're a normal part of the Christian life. And we cannot be surprised when they happen. Students often fall into this same trap. We'll take a test, right? Some of you remember back to your high school or your college days. You'd take a test and you'd go there and you'd fill it out. And then halfway through or maybe when you're done, it'll be like, oh, that test was so hard. I'm so bad at that class, right? Oh. 
No, that's not how, the test is hard because you have a good teacher, right? You find out how good you were at the class when your grade comes back, right? And that's what you remember today. Did you get an A in the class or not? You're not so troubled today by how hard the test was. The teacher designed the test to be hard, but also to sort out the A students from the C students. And what you want is that grade to come back and you want to find out that you have stood the test. Sometimes because of this, because we think that if it's hard or if it's lonely, we're doing it wrong, uh, we're ashamed to share with each other the ways that our faith is being tested at church. Uh, We can be quick a lot of times in our Sunday school classes to share our health problems and many of the things we want people to pray for, Uh, but it's really hard in the Sunday school class to say something like, yeah, I, I, uh, now it's been two months that I've been putting out resumes and I still don't have a job and it's really challenging my faith in God, my faith's really being tested. It's almost like I don't feel like God's gonna provide for me. That's hard to say in a Sunday school class, isn't it? But if it's hard and it's lonely and you're being tested, that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. And so we have freedom and we even have language here with which to talk about it to each other. God's testing my faith. I'm going through a hard thing and God's testing me. Pray for me that I will stand the test. We can make an environment like that if we're just willing to lift those prayer requests up together and share them with each other, even in places like our Sunday school classes. So that's the first point today. Tests are often painful and they are often lonely. And that comes through in all of the emphasis that author puts on Abraham's pain and Abraham's loneliness. If you're in pain and if you're lonely, you're not doing it wrong. You're probably just being tested. The second point comes from a question, maybe it's expressed well in a question that we often ask. A lot of times when we talk about this story, some of you have even asked this question, do you think you could have done it if you were Abraham? You think you could have gone all the way up to the, oh, I don't know if I could, maybe I could have done it, I don't know. And I was talking to somebody the other day, actually last Sunday, who gave the best answer you can give to that question, which is, I don't know, because I've never been in the situation, right? You don't actually know what's in you until you get put to the test and what's really in you gets brought out of you. And that's really our second point today. God's tests show what's really in you. They show either your faith or your lack of faith that will come out in the test. Before we get to that point, I need to clarify There is one very important clarification to make here, and that is that the Lord will not test you in the very same way he has tested Abraham. That is, the Lord will never ask you to sacrifice one of your children. How can we be confident in that when he did it to Abraham, that he won't do it to us? Well, here's why. There's one thing that was the same in that day and today, and there's one thing that was different. What was the same was the Lord hated child sacrifice then, and he hates child sacrifice now. That's why he doesn't let Abraham go through with it. He doesn't actually want us to offer our children in worship. But there's a difference now. The word of God had not been written then, and it has been written now, which means the Lord had not forbidden it yet. The Lord has forbidden it now. So he hated it then, but he had not yet spoken the word and forbidden it. He hates it now, and he has forbidden it. You can count on God not to command you to do something he has also forbidden, right? That would make him a contradictory God. And since he has forbidden child sacrifice, we know he will not ask of us something that he has forbidden. That's logic you can take to anything. If you think that God is calling you to do something that he forbids, 
That's not God calling you to do that, and you should not do that. More likely to actually happen to you if someone is wronging you in doing something to you that God forbids, and they are playing the God card on you, telling you God's telling me to do this thing that is actually forbidden. That person is manipulating you, and you should not listen to that person. So to be very clear here, God will not ask of you something that he has also forbidden in his word. But he did ask it of Abraham, and he will test us in other ways. And what we see in Abraham is that the faith in him is brought out when he is put under trial. This is emphasized a few ways by the author. We see it first in verse 5. When Abraham leaves his servants, he says something really profound to them. Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He says, we're both coming back. Why does he say that? Well, Hebrews 11 tells us he says that because he actually believed it was true. He believed that he was going to receive Isaac back from the dead after he offered him. And because of that faith, he was able to go through with this act. We see the faith demonstrated again in verse 8. Now, I already told you about Isaac's excruciating question, where is the lamb? Abraham's answer is in verse 8, God will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. So he's got faith that God is going to take care of this. Whatever's going to happen on that mountain, you're going to be okay and I'm going to be okay, even though this really does not add up. And then finally in verse 12, the angel says to him, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So Abraham, not withholding his son, showed what was in him. The fear of God was in him. We add all that up to say that the faith and the fear of God that was inside him was brought out of him during this test and this trial. And the same thing happens when God tests you as well. Whatever was really in you, whether it's faith or lack of faith, whether it's a deep reverence and worship for God or a disregard of his ways, it will be brought out of you when you are put to the test. You don't ever know what's really in there until you're put to the test. I'll give you an example. I think of myself as a really patient driver compared to other people. But here's what happened. You're already laughing, aren't you? <laughs> I was driving north on 135 last Wednesday before any of this snow hit, back when it was really cold, like five degrees at night, back in those days. Driving forth in the morning on 135, and my kids are at a homeschool thing, and I'm driving to see them, because this thing happens once a year, and I really want to be there with them. And I get to that intersection where 135 and Smith Valley cross there, and there's a traffic light, and on the other side of the light, there's a Circle K, and there's a Hertz rent-a-car right there, and I'm coming up to that light, except I can't see the rent-a-car or the Circle K because there's a big truck towing a car that has been wrecked right out of the intersection. There's been a wreck in the intersection. And everybody is kind of frantically going to the right so they can turn right on Smith Valley or to the left. I'm in the left lane, so I go over left and try to turn left onto Smith Valley. And the light turns red when there are two cars in front of me, so I got to sit there and, and wait for one round of the light. 
Except by the time the light comes around, the two cars in front of me go, and then I get up there and the light turns red again. So I got to stop again. I'm like, man, all right. So then things go around again. And before the light turns green, uh, a traffic officer gets out of one of the cars and starts directing traffic. Now it's like, I don't know, eight degrees outside. And this poor man is out there in the cold and in the wind and he's directing traffic and he's bundled up like anything. You can't see his face. And I'm thinking, oh, this poor man out here in the cold having to direct this traffic. So there I am, waiting, just waiting to turn, been waiting for like seven or eight minutes at this point. And he welcomes the traffic that's crossing on Smith Valley to go and they get to take a turn. It's okay. And then he brings over the traffic that I'm facing that's going straight south down 135. And I'm like, all right, my turn's next. Then he stops them and he just forgets about us and he goes right back to these people on Smith Valley <laughs> and lets them go. <laughs> he does this three or four times and I just have to sit there right in the front of this line and just wait until they have cleared this entire wreck out of there because this officer doesn't realize there's this whole lane of people waiting to turn left. And at this point, I've just, I've just lost my patience. And it, I do not care how cold this poor man is that he is out there in the cold directing traffic. I just want to get to my kids. And I learned that day, I didn't, thankfully I didn't do anything that I regret, but, but my impatience boiled so much and I gave so many, God, you know, so many of these gestures and through the window shield, I learned that I'm not as patient as I think I am, right? I think that I'm a patient person, but you put a traffic officer making a mistake between me and my kids, and suddenly I'm not a very patient person. When you get put to the test like that, the things that are really in you that you may have overlooked start to really come out of you. And that's one of the points that the Lord wants to drive home here. It is easy for your heart to deceive itself. Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it, right? You can convince yourself that you're patient or that you're pure, that you have a lot of faith or you really trust God. And sometimes the Lord puts these tests in our lives so that then we have to look back and say, well, I guess that didn't really work out, did it? I guess I'm not really what I thought I was. The same way that a quarterback thinks he's got victory in him and then he gets creamed in a game, then he's got to look at it and say, well, I guess I have some stuff to work on before the next game. Sometimes the Lord puts those things in your life to bring out what is in you. Sometimes he does that, Deuteronomy 8 says, uh, to humble us. He says in Deuteronomy 8, I tested you, uh, I think it was with manna in the wilderness, to humble you for your good. Sometimes he sees what's really in you and you see what you think is in you and he puts you to the test so you can look back and say, oh, that, that wasn't really in me. And now you know what you need to grow in in your faith. I wonder how much you fear God and how much you fear man. And I can tell you, you want to know how to learn? Look back at the last time you had a chance to share the gospel with somebody, but you were a little nervous about it. What did you do? Did you fear God or did you fear man? Whatever was in you came out when you were put to the test. Some people believe that sex is a biological need and that if you're not getting it, you can go to whatever links you need to to get what your body needs. And others of us say, no, the Lord provides me with what I need. I have all I need because God gave it to me. And so if he didn't give me that, then I must not need that. 
Which one do you believe? Do you believe it's a biological need that you've got a right to, or do you believe that God gives you all you need? Well, if you're either single or if you're married and for some reason can't partake with your spouse, you can tell which one you believe by the purity that you're walking in. I wonder if you wonder to yourself, do I have self-control? You can look back on the most recent tests, the most recent times your patience was tested, the most recent times you really desired something and ask what you did, and you can learn if you really have self-control. I have a friend who, uh, her husband died when she was maybe in her mid-40s, and uh, she went to a church that had a lot of single men, and so when she was done grieving for her husband, uh, she began to date again. Guys were asking her out, so she started saying yes when guys asked her out. And she would go on these dates with these guys, a lot of whom she met at church and seemed like pretty good guys. And she would explain to them that because she was a Christian, she wasn't going to have sex again unless she got married again. Uh, And then they'd go through the date and then the date would end and she would keep her word. He wasn't going in her house with her, right? She was going to be pure until she got married. And the way that she described it was, I went out on a lot of first dates, Because a lot of those guys just didn't call back again because they didn't get what they wanted. And her steadfastness was put to the test. Are you still going to be pure when that's the reason the guys don't call again? That'll put your faith to the test. Now, she stood the test. Thank God God wound up giving her a godly husband. The point is, those trials, those tests, they bring out what's really in you. Will you still do the right thing even when? It's always for our good Sometimes it's to humble us. But the third point is that often it is so that the Lord can reward us for our faith. That's our last point today. Those who stand the test are rewarded richly for their faith. We see this in verse 15 and following. After Abraham stands the test, the angel Lord calls to him a second time from heaven. He says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So because Abraham stood the test, He is receiving all of these promises. Now, here's the interesting thing. The little bit about his offspring possessing the gate of his enemies, that's new. He hasn't said that yet. Other than that, everything in that promise was stuff that was already promised to Abraham. Isn't that strange? I was already going to give you all this stuff. And now, because you stood the test, I'm going to give you all this stuff that I already said I was going to give you. How does that add up? Well, because Abraham received those things as a reward for his faith, right? In chapters 12 and and, and 17, uh, one of the things we read along there is that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So God already knew that Abraham had faith. God already credited it to Abraham because he had faith. And now that he is acting in faith, God says yet again, because you've obeyed me, I'm going to give all of this to you. Why is that? Well, because what he did brought out and proved his faith. 
As the book of Hebrews says, he did this by faith. Or as the book of James says, faith without works is dead. And Abraham's faith was made active in his works and completed by his works. When you stand the test, you are not just believing something in your heart. You are acting in a way that verifies that belief. And that moves the heart of God to reward you richly. And so the Lord just lays out these promises with even bigger language and even more wonderful ways of saying it because Abraham passed the test. So the point is then, it's worth it to have to go through the test to receive the reward. You don't want to be Abraham up to verse 10 in this story, do you? But you do want to be Abraham from verse 11 to the end. And once the test is over, he can look back and he can say, that was worth it. All that pain that I went through was worth it for the reward that God is giving me. The same is true for you. If the Lord is testing you right now, if he has tested you in the past, when he tests you tomorrow, the reward at the end, if you stand firm, is worth the test, worth the pain. Uh, Emily and I have two friends who I think really exemplify this. I think of them often when I think about steadfastness and faithfulness. Uh, Two couple friends. You know, couples have couple friends. I don't ever know the right word for that, but two couples that we're friends with. Uh, Both of them went through a terrible trial in that both of them, while they were pregnant, learned that the day that the baby would be born would very probably also be the day that the baby would die. The baby could survive in her womb, but could not survive once this was born. Two different moms this happened to that we know. Both of them were then pressured or at least recommended by doctors to just go ahead and abort the baby now. And both of them stood that test and said, no, this baby belongs to God and God can keep it alive for as long as he wants to. And so they're kind of fighting it that way from one angle. And then once the baby is born, then they've got to do the opposite. Now, because God is taking its life, they have to be willing to give the child back to God. I cannot imagine holding your child in your hand for a moment and then giving it back to God. But both of these couples did that and they did it faithfully. What we see here, I think, is that in heaven, those couples will have a reward that I will not have and that most of you will not have, but perhaps a few of you will. Because... I believe that my children belong to God. And I think if I were tested, I think that's what would come out. Of course, you can deceive yourself. But what those couples did was they proved it. They stood the test and their faith was brought out. That leads to great and rich reward in heaven. That may be the way that God tests you, but he will test you and he has tested you. And whatever it is, the reward at the end is worth it. So stand strong. It's worth it. Okay, this final paragraph, I just want to point out a few things in it. It doesn't pertain much to our message today, and it's in the story for two reasons. One is to introduce Rebecca. It's the first time Rebecca's name is mentioned, and soon we're going to read a story about Rebecca, and it's going to be very important that she is from a family that is close to Abraham, so she is set up, that part of it is set up there. 
Also, if you are interested in the book of Job, you may know that the story of Job takes place in the land of Uz, and that one of his friends is a, a Buzzite. One of the friends that comes and visits him is a Buzzite. You read about the origins of that land here in verse 21. Uz was the firstborn of Nahor, and Buzz was his brother. This is why many people think that the book of Job took place a few generations after this over in that land with the descendants of Nahor. So those little bits there, they help to inform other stories, but not so much about this story. Let me close just with a word for those of you that are here this morning, but are not believers in Jesus Christ, would not consider yourselves part of God's people. I told you at the end, I'd give you something just for you. And I pray that what you see here is something that makes sense of all of the great suffering in life. One of the big questions that people ask when they look around is, why is everything so broken? And, and why is it that we see, it seems like we're all alone in this mess with no one to walk through it with us. And I want you to see that even what we see here, the people of God don't walk through our sufferings alone. We have a God who would write a story like this just to prepare this group today for whatever we're going to walk through. We have a God who will guide us all the way and then reward us richly at the end. This is a God who gives us a story and understanding by which to just make sense of all of the mess and all of the suffering in life. And I would not have you as a person going through all of the suffering just not understanding what is going on. Far better to be one of the people of God who have a God to look through in their suffering. Far, far better to be one of the people who can say, the Lord is my shepherd, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So if you have seen God shepherd and care for his people today, I want to invite you to become one of his people. You can do that through the lamb that God provided for us. The lamb we talked about last week and is alluded to in this story. That's Jesus Christ. He is God-made man, and he had come to earth to live perfectly and die to offer a sacrifice for our sins. If you would turn and trust him and what he offers, you could be one of his people too. And so my final call then is for anyone who is willing, place your faith in Jesus Christ. This God is good, and he is worthy of your trust. We move now to the Lord's Supper. And one of the callings in the scriptures is to examine ourselves before we take the supper, right? We often take that calling to, to examine ourselves on the inside. Is there any sin in my heart that I need to confess to God? And that's a wise thing to do. But I think what we've learned from our story today tells us there's another thing we gotta examine, and that's our, our lives. We, we may have what we think is in our heart, but what came out of us in the last week? What came out of us in the week before? This can tell us what is inside and what we ought to confess to the Lord before we take the supper together. We move there and we'll move there in prayer and then I'll ask the deacons to come forward and we'll take the supper together. Let's pray.